Good morning, everyone. I'm James Matson, pastor of discipleship here, and it's great to be with you this morning. Uh, I'd like to begin today by introducing you to Bob Pierce. Look, there's Bob Pierce right there. Bob Pierce, uh, in the 1940s, took several trips to China and Korea to preach the gospel to the lost. And then later on, he volunteered to go back as a, as a war correspondent when the Korean War broke out. And what he saw there broke his heart so much that, that he wrote a simple prayer in his Bible. Let my heart be broken with the things that break the Lord's heart. God used his experiences in Asia to give him the heart to start World Vision and Samaritan's Purse. Today, World Vision alone helps three and a half million children in a hundred countries. All this from this dangerous prayer, Lord, break my heart with the things that break the heart of God. God used his experiences in Asia, and I'm just wondering what it is that keeps God from using us. Like, what is it that keeps us from becoming the next Bob Pierce? What is hindering us from giving our heart to the things that God cares about? What do you think? Maybe the obvious answer is that our heart cannot break with God's heart if if our heart is far from God. Isn't this Jesus' primary condemnation of the Pharisees? In Mark 7, Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teaching are merely human rules. What keeps our heart far from God? Well, of course, you might think that sin is the thing that separates us from God, and certainly on one level... That is right. I asked my my wife, who knows everything, I asked my wife, what breaks the Lord's heart? And she said, my sin. And I stopped and I thought, how does she know about my sin? And then I realized, whew, she was talking about her own sin. That was, was a relief. And then, but then I go, oh yeah, she's probably talking about about my sin too, and uh, she's probably talking about your sin uh, as well, right? But then she said something profound. She said, Jesus always knew about my sin, and that is why he came to be the remedy for my sin. And so now he is most grieved when we reject that remedy. That is what breaks the Lord's heart. And we've seen this throughout the, the whole arc of Scripture to be true. Let's just look at Isaiah 30:15, for example. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. The Lord is telling us that we are lost in our sin and our unbelief, but that he has made a way. Jesus says, I am the way. Repent and believe. 
But we run from the invitation that Jesus extends to us in big and small ways every single day. We rely on our own solutions to make ourselves right, feel whole, feel like we're good enough, feel validated or comfortable. And why is that? Well, I think one of the reasons why is that that accepting his remedy means we have to face the reality of our own desperation and need, and we are really uncomfortable with that. We see this principle clearly as Jesus interacts with all kinds of people throughout the Gospels. We see people who see their own need for Jesus and run to him as the remedy, and then we see other people who try to rely on their own strength and goodness. There's a story in Luke 7 where, where we see these two kinds of people side by side. So let's look at that story, Luke chapter 7. We're going to start at verse 36. Luke writes, When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is. She is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman has not stopped kissing my feet from the time I entered. You did not put oil on my head, but she poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, Her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So Simon invites Jesus over for a meal so that he and his friends can judge Jesus for themselves. Following the custom of the time, the guests would have been seated in a semi-reclined low couches arranged in a U-shape. Jesus would have been seated right next to Simon as the special guest. And sometimes the tables would have been set up in the, uh, outside in the courtyard of the home. So it is possible then that someone could have just come and walk in off the street uninvited. And this seems to be the case here, right? When this woman who is deemed to be a prostitute crashes the dinner party. And this is just the beginning of her cultural offenses. 
She noticed that, that Simon did not wash Jesus' feet, which would have been a basic common courtesy for a dinner guest in those days. So she takes down her hair to wash his feet. Now, in those days, a woman would only take down her hair for her husband, and certainly never in public. And then she takes her perfume, the most expensive thing that she owns, and she pours it over Jesus' feet. She has abandoned all sense of cultural decency to show her love for Jesus. And so now let me ask you this question. Who do you identify with in this story? Are you more like Simon, or are you more like the woman? Are you waiting to see if there's going to be a third option for you? (laughs) Let's consider Simon the Pharisee first. Simon was a religious leader who took pride in keeping the rules and only hanging out with fellow rule keepers, right? He saw himself as righteous by his own doing, and because of this, he saw himself as superior to others. And we can see this by the fact that he did not extend to Jesus the basic common hospitalities of the day. I mean, can you imagine inviting someone over for dinner and not even saying hello to them? Simon invited Jesus over so that he could pronounce judgment on Jesus. And if he had no place in his heart for Jesus, you can imagine he had no compassion on this broken woman who came in to anoint Jesus' feet. But the truth is this. Simon is just as sinful as the prostitute. His sins were more socially acceptable. Self-righteousness, self-reliance, the failure to love. And these are the kinds of sins that we don't usually repent of, right? Because they're socially acceptable and because they're so hard to see in ourselves. Self-righteousness is at the core of our sin nature. And I think sometimes we tend to think of self-righteousness as just being proud and haughty and feeling superior over others, but it's really as simple as denying our own need for God. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, the primary sin they passed along to us was self-righteousness. We want to decide what is right and wrong for us, not God. We resist utter and complete dependence upon God. We want to decide what makes us good enough. We want to make our own way apart from God. Danish theologian Soren Kierkegaard said, sin is building our identities and self-worth in anything other than God. Did you catch that? Soren is saying that self-esteem is a sin. That sounds like a very un-American statement, doesn't it? But let's consider the realities of what he is saying here. If my whole identity is built on my success and failures, on my ability to get approval from the world around me, then my whole purpose in life is to manage my identity, to make sure that I am getting the approval that I need. And well, if my identity is based on success and approval, then people just become the means to get my needs met. Seems very self-focused, doesn't it? So it is truly impossible to love people if we just see them as someone who is supposed to be meeting my needs, right? Trying to build our identity on self always leads us to idolatry, which leads to a failure to love 
and leads to systemic injustice in our society. But when I can own up to my own selfishness, I can begin to see how my personal choices play a part in the greater systemic issues of our culture. Owning up to our sinfulness leads to the path of connecting my heart to God's heart. But I have to confess something to you. I'm a lot like Simon. I'm a rule follower. I'm one who craves attention. I'm one who likes to be in control and get his own way. I am probably the only one here though, right? (laughs) You know, even when there are no actual rules, I'm really good at making them up, right? Uh, Let me give you an example. Uh, I have a highly developed sense of what I call Costco righteousness. Uh, I, shop, I shop at Costco every week, usually on Saturday morning at, when it opens, if you want to avoid me uh, then. Uh, and let me tell you, there is a right way and a wrong way to shop at Costco. You will not be surprised to know that I shop the right way, right? <laughs> you know, walk through the store systematically, always on the right side, never stop for samples, and never ever abandon your cart blocking the aisle right? A person should be able to get in and out of Costco with 36 items in less than 14 minutes. (laughs) I did that yesterday with two small children, so let me tell you, there is a right way to shop at Costco, right? So woe to you if you fail to follow the rules, right? I will have no mercy on you. Well, this is just a silly example of how easy it is for us to fall into self-righteousness. And given this description, how well do you think my heart is able to love people when I'm at Costco? (laughs) Right? Uh, If I even notice that there are people there at all, I'm probably going to treat them more as judge and prosecutor. I find that when I'm selfish, my heart can easily harden toward the plight of someone who is hurting and broken. And if this is the condition of my heart at Costco, How much more then, when I think of what's happening in Syria or the Sudan, that it just seems far away and distant and not my problem. I tend to be really hard on Simon, but it's probably because I see a lot of myself in him. Uh, Let's consider the woman who anoints Jesus' feet, on the other hand. Her perfume was in a jar that that she probably wore around her neck, and she would use the aroma of the perfume to lure customers. In fact, it may have been this jar that she wore around her neck that identified her as a prostitute. That's how they knew who she was. So you could say that 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 jar was her very identity. And there was no top on this jar, so in order to get the perfume out, she would have to break the jar open to anoint Jesus' feet. So when she breaks the jar, she's really saying, I am done with that old lifestyle. She is saying, I'm done trying to meet my own needs in my own ways. Like that jar, she is feeling her own sense of brokenness and desperation. The jar represented the thing she found her identity in, the thing she was giving her heart to. And let me ask you, what is it in your life that is like that jar? the thing that we must protect at all costs 
so that we don't feel our need? What is the thing that is keeping us from completely giving our heart to God so that he can use us? What is the thing that you're putting your identity in? The thing you're looking to to feel good enough? Maybe it is striving for that next promotion or running the next marathon or possessing the perfect house. Right? None of those things are bad in and of themselves, but, but when we look to them as our protection for our righteousness or building our identity on them, they begin to own our heart and they create a barrier between us and God. And as long as we are protecting that thing we are looking to to get life from apart from God, our hearts will not be aligned with God's heart. When these things that can be good or bad or right even, right, when we can start to become enslaved to them, they harden our hearts to what is actually best for us. We see an example of this in the fictional tale The Hobbit, right? There was a hobbit who later became known as Gollum. And Gollum found a ring that he came to adore more than anything else. His obsession with that ring twisted his heart and his mind. It became his precious. The things we are putting our identity in apart from Jesus are enslaving us as well. The power of our precious is such that we don't even notice how it is enslaving us, how it owns us, and how it keeps us from loving other people well. In order for our hearts to be aligned with God, we must be released from the precious that enslaves us. We must break the jar that holds our identity and be freed from its bondage. Oftentimes, this is the gift of suffering in our life. When we go through hard times, it reveals to us what it is that we hold dearer than Jesus. It reveals to us the reality of our desperation and need for him. Lord, break my heart. Lord, break open the jar that keeps my heart from you. Man, that sounds like a dangerous prayer, doesn't it? Because that thing is our precious. We do not want to let go of it. Lord, break my heart over the things that keep my heart from you. It is the path to aligning our heart with God and finding what we really need in Jesus. For the woman who anointed Jesus, her brokenness over her sin leads her to see her need for Jesus. And Jesus tells the woman that her sins are forgiven. And he can say this because Jesus is God who came down to earth to save sinners, to die on the cross for those sins, and then rise again to give us sinners a hope and a future. This woman has been given a new identity in Christ. And so she gives her whole life to Jesus. So we can start to see then that having our esteem in Christ is so much better than having self-esteem. For when we are in Christ, Jesus says that, that we are forgiven and that we are loved and that we are accepted and that we are secure. And this new identity is not built on our performance, but it's based on his performance on the cross. We receive all of this just by faith. So when our identity is in Jesus, we are freed from the slavery of self-esteem and self-righteousness. We are freed from striving. There is nothing left to prove. So you see in the story, 
The comparison that Jesus sets up for us here is not one of sinner versus non-sinner. No, we are all sinners desperately in need of Jesus. The comparison in this story is one person who sees their need and she runs to Jesus to receive the remedy and the other person, Simon, who continues to look to his own record of self-righteousness. Both, both lives bear fruit, though, don't they? The life of Simon's life is judgment, a failure to love others, and the inability to serve. And the fruit of the woman's life is lavish love. She gives everything she has to Jesus, just like Bob Pierce did. So when we find our identity in, in Jesus, the whole purpose of our life changes. We, we freely live for him. We freely love others instead of use them. Our prayer life becomes about our relationship with God, worshiping him, submitting to his will, and lifting up others in prayer. It sounds so easy, doesn't it? Except because of my sin nature, I'm continually a t- tempted to put my identity back in me. The truth is, I never outgrow my need for Jesus. So this isn't a one-time breaking of our jar at conversion and then it's all good. No, each day is a lesson in repentance and faith. God's mercies are new every morning because every morning I need God's mercy. See, every day we keep coming back and breaking that jar and then receiving what Christ offers to us. As my wife often says, all of life is just two steps. Very simple, two steps. Repenting of the thing I'm trying to find life in apart from Christ and faith, putting my trust in Jesus and receiving from him. Repentance and faith. The grace of Jesus is there for us every day. I have found this chart to be really helpful for me. Uh, the left side shows the inward movement of my heart, right? As, as God's grace is at work in me, he shows me my sin. And then I have the opportunity to, re- to repent, to exercise my faith by putting my trust back in Jesus. And when I receive his grace, I experience great joy as I'm overwhelmed by his love and his grace, right? And this is an ongoing process as I continue to struggle in my sin nature. But God's grace not only renews my heart, it should propel me outward to love other people, right? Right? It moves me to the right side of the chart where, where God's grace moves me to see opportunities to love and to minister to other people. And because my identity is in Christ, I am free to die to self and, and step out in faith and love and serve other people. And I rejoice at the opportunity to be a part of building his kingdom. God's grace becomes the fuel for us to love other people. Reaching out to love and serve others doesn't come out of obligation or a do-more, try-harder religion. It comes out of our natural response to God's grace for us. Jesus implies this statement at the end of the Luke story. He says, those who have been forgiven much love much. God's grace should overwhelm us. 
This becomes the environment where we can just love people right where they are. We start to see people through the eyes of Jesus as people that he dearly loves, as people who desperately need Jesus like I need Jesus. We are all the same at the foot of the cross. The truth is we will not be very good at bringing the gospel to people if we think they need Jesus more than I need Jesus, right? And if Jesus is not good news for us, we will not think he is good news for other people either. When our heart breaks with the Lord's heart, we are compelled by love to join him in mission wherever he is at work, ministering to the poor, the orphan, the sick, and the brokenhearted. And I think so often our own experience of brokenness connects us to the place where God is calling us to step out in faith and love. Bob Pierce's heart broke with the Lord's heart. With his hands, he worked tirelessly to meet the physical needs of the people he met. And with his mouth, he gave people what he needed as well, Jesus. He passionately preached the gospel wherever he went. In fact, one summer, 30,000 people received Christ through his preaching. I have to say, it was challenging today to just to stick with talking about, Lord, break our heart, and not get into, well, what is the next steps? But, but that's Petey's charge next week <laughs> when he preaches on the prayer, here I am, send me. In order to be ready, though, to pray that prayer, our hearts need to be in the right place. We need to be in the place where we simply live to say yes to Jesus. And so as we prepare ourselves for that, let's close today by taking our dangerous prayer card. And we're going to pray together. If you look on the back side, I'm going to pray one line and just allow you a moment to talk to God about that. And I'll move on to the next line and uh, hopefully I'll eventually close, right? Lord, we come before you. We ask you to break my heart for what breaks yours. Lord, open my eyes that I may see what is keeping me from giving my whole heart to you. Help me to understand how amazing your grace is that I would be compelled to share it with others. Give me a heart for lost and hurting people. Oppress upon my heart the ones you want me to reach out to. Jesus, we are so grateful that you came and you died on the cross for us and you invite us into relationship with you that you give us new life and a new identity where we are loved and secured and forgiven. Help us to rest in the truth of that and may the power of that just propel us out into the world to love and to serve others just as you have loved us. In thy name we pray, amen.